There was a blind man sitting at the huddle house at the counter when he heard a young woman come in and it sounded like she had a couple of her friends with her. The young woman sat down at the counter next to him. Now, the blind man wasn't the brightest man in the world, but he was very social. So he decided he would strike a a conversation with the young woman who had sat down next to him. And so he leaned over toward her and he said, I've got a blonde joke I want to tell you. And the girl looked at him and she immediately knew that he was blind because of his sunglasses. And she answered him in a rather perturbed voice and said, Before you tell me your blonde joke, let me tell you about us. I am six foot two inches tall. I have a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. And I'm blonde. My friend next to me is six foot three inches tall. And she is the Georgia State Champion in bodybuilding. And she's blonde. My other friend is six foot six inches tall and is the national kickboxing champion. And she is blonde. So, old blind man, do you still want to tell us your blonde joke? The man thought for a moment and then looked over at her and said, No, I don't feel like explaining it three times. (laughs) Now listen, if you're blind, that's just a joke, okay? Uh, If you want, after services, you can corner me and tell me a dumb preacher joke, and I promise I'll stand there and laugh. But I tell you that joke because Christians have sort of been relegated to the realm of blinds in our belief in God and in Christ. Now keep in mind, those who have assigned us to this brood of blondes are blind. They cannot see. And I also would like to remind you that those who assign us to the brood of blondes, we have more fun in the end. But our topic, understanding God, let me tell you, it can make you feel intellectually deficient. At least it does for me. I've studied the character of God for over 30 years. And I still find myself both stumped and mystified when I consider the scope of who and what God is. I struggle to understand how God tolerates the wickedness of men. I look at World War II and the Holocaust. And I see where 50 to 70 million people died. They're not sure exactly. 6 to 11 million in the Holocaust, 39 to 59 million from the war. I look at the silent Holocaust that's happening as I speak right here in this country. Since 1973, 50 million unborn children have been slaughtered in their mother's wombs while they sleep. Most of the time without remorse or regret or repentance of the mother. I struggle with how the love of God can coexist with the reality of hell. I wrestle with the justice of God and how that works with the mercy of God and how they're not in conflict with one another. Understanding God is definitely the deep end of the river. But we're talking about big thoughts versus little thoughts. Understanding God boils down to big omniscient thoughts versus little finite human thoughts. And that's a struggle for me because I'm on the little 
finite human side. I think it's safe to go with the big omniscient thoughts of God. I'm not the only preacher that struggles with this. It's a preacher by the name of Francis Chan. He's very popular. He's pastored a very, very large church that he started with just a few people. And he struggles with the same things. I have a clip that we'll play. In Isaiah 55, God says, Your thoughts are not like my thoughts, and your ways are not as my ways. He goes, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's, that's how much higher my ways are than your ways. And that's how much higher my thoughts are than your thoughts. So when we begin an argument with well, I wouldn't believe in a God who would, who would what? Do something that you wouldn't do? Or think in a way that's different from the way you think? Do you ever even consider the possibility that maybe the Creator's sense of justice is actually more developed than yours? And that maybe His love and His mercy are perfect. And that you could be the one that is flawed. And then, then, then you get to the end and, and, and Revelation 20, how the story ends. And I go, God, you're going to do that to one of your created beings where He takes the devil. And in Revelation 20, verse 10, it says the devil, this is God's creation who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I read that, I go, really? Tormented day and night forever and ever? And then in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Look, there are a lot of things in this book that I go, wow, God, you did that, you thought that, I wouldn't think that, and I wouldn't have done that. But when I come to those passages, and when you come to those passages, does it even enter your mind that maybe he knows something that you don't? Or is it always, I have this ability to reason and I have this level of morality and so something in him must be off here or I won't believe in him. It's good to know I'm not the only one that struggles with these things. It's a struggle to understand God. We may not understand His patience and how He tolerates such an evil world. We may not understand how infinite love and infinite justice can coexist with one another. We may not understand how love can have any part in the existence of hell, but it boils down to God knows more than we know. And He is always right. Always right. He cannot do wrong. He cannot be wrong. Omniscient thoughts trump finite thoughts every time. God Himself says so. 
Chan mentioned it. For as my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So today as we continue this difficult task of understanding God, the first thing we need to see is the love of God. Now the Bible states clearly that God is a God of love. First John the fourth chapter and verse 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. First John 4 and verse 16 says, God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Now, regretfully, the majority of the religious world, as well as the non-religious world, have taken these statements, God is love, out of these two verses, and they've created a silent universalism that secretly permeates our thoughts and our theology. I call it good old boyism. Joe's a good old boy. He'll give you the shirt off his back. But Joe doesn't go to church. He doesn't worship God. He doesn't follow Christ. He doesn't pray. He doesn't give. He doesn't study. He's not a Christian. But when Joe dies because God is love, we think Joe's somehow going to be all right. That's silent universalism. Tozer puts it this way. And by the way, someone asked me last week, why do you quit, keep quoting Tozer? Because of his insight into the character of God. And also, you may think this is some great theological Ph.D., Ph.D., Ph.D. Tozer never finished high school. He went for a few weeks and he quit. But Tozer puts it this way. He says, The Apostle John by the Spirit wrote, God is love. And some have taken his words to be a definitive statement concerning the essential nature of God. This is a great era. John was, by those words, stating a fact. He was not offering a definition. Equating love with God is a major mistake which has produced much unsound religious philosophy and has brought forth a spate of vaporous poetry completely out of accord with the Holy Scriptures and altogether of another climate than that of historic Christianity. God and His love is a part of who He is, but it is not all of who He is. The Bible speaks clearly concerning the wrath of God. John 3 and verse 36, only 10 verses after John in 3 and verse 16 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Revelation 14, 10 and 11, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of His indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Second Thessalonians 1, 7-9, To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them who know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. You sit there and you go, why mention God's wrath when the point is God's love? Because you, me, and the rest of the world must understand that God's emotional character is not limited to only love. That's silent universalism. It springs from that kind of understanding. God is love, but it is not all God is. And we'll delve deeper into God's wrath, anger, and vengeance when we get to the justice of God. But God's love is true. 
And no doubt it is within our reasoning, but beyond our reasoning. Tozer again said, from God's other known attributes, we may learn much about His love. We can know, for instance, that because God is self-existent, His love had no beginning. Because He is eternal, His love can have no end. Because He is infinite, it has no limit. Because He is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because He is immense, His love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea before which we kneel in joyful silence and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats confused and abashed. It is a strange and beautiful eccentricity of the free God that He has allowed His heart to be emotionally identified with men. Self-sufficient as He is, He wants our love and will not be satisfied till He gets it. Free as He is, He's let His heart be bound to us forever. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, you and I can never debate, discuss, deliberate, or discern completely the love of God. Ephesians, the third chapter, verses 17 through 19, Paul encouraged the church at Ephesus to try. But he said that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now here he is saying that this love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge, but I want you to know it. Though we can never completely and adequately discuss, debate, deliberate or discern God's love, we can see it. We can see it. We see it at Calvary. Only hours before He was betrayed, Jesus said in John the 15th chapter, verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Paul pointed to the cross as the ultimate physical, emotional, and spiritual demonstration of God's love. To the church at Galatia, he wrote in chapter 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Later on in chapter 6 of that same book, verse 14, He said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. To the church at Colossae, He would write in chapter 1, verses 19-22, through 22, For it pleased the Father that in Him, speaking of Jesus, should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him, I say whether things in earth or things in heaven, and you who were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. No doubt John 3 and verse 16 comes to play when we talk about the cross of Christ and when we talk about the love of Christ. John 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That He gave His only begotten Son, that doesn't mean He sent Him into the world to do a walkabout or to look around. It means He sent Him into the world to nail Him to a cross. And that is exactly what God did because of His love. Isaiah 53 verse 10 and verse 11, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. 
He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. The cross of Christ demonstrates the love of God fully and completely. Romans 5 verse 8 and verse 9 says, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. I venture to say there's not a woman in here, or a man in here that would give your child to die for someone else. Much less there's not a person in here that would give their child to die horrendously for someone else. To be mocked. To be spit upon. To be berated as a worthless animal. To be shredded by a flagellum, To be crowned with thorns. What parent? What parent could do that? God loved so much. That is exactly what He did. God's love is clearly demonstrated at the cross. Second, the second thing we must understand about God is the mercy of God. Now, the definition of mercy comes from the Greek word eleo, which means to help one afflicted or seeking aid, to have compassion and pity. Merriam-Webster puts it like this, compassion or forbearance shown especially to an offender or to one subject to one's power, lenient and compassionate in treatment. Let me give you mine. God's withholding something that we deserve. Wrath. Mercy is God's withholding something that we deserve. Anyone in here who has ever been pulled over by a police? How many of you have ever been pulled over by a police? How many of you have ever been given a warning? That's mercy. If you in fact broke the laws concerning the operation of your automobile, you deserved a ticket. But instead you were let off with a warning. That's mercy. The withholding of something that you deserved. Everyone knows the story of David and Bathsheba. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then to cover up that sin, he had her husband killed. According to the law, David was guilty on two counts. Two capital counts. Adultery and murder. Both of those were capital offenses in the law of Moses. But Nathan would come to David and say, The Lord hath put away your sin. Thou shalt not die. That's mercy. David received what he needed, not what he deserved. You and I need to understand something. We deserve nothing from God. The only thing we deserve from God is wrath, anger, and vengeance. He chose to go another route. Tozer puts it best. He says, When through the blood of the everlasting covenant, we children of the shadows reach at last our home in the light, we shall have a thousand strings to our harps, but the sweetest may well be the one tuned to sound forth most perfectly the mercy of God. For what right will we have to be there? Did we not by our sins take part in that unholy rebellion which rashly sought to dethrone the glorious King of creation? And did we not in times past walk according to the course of this world, according to the evil prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience? And did we not all at once live in the lust of our flesh? And were we not by nature children of wrath, even as others? But we, who were one time enemies and alienated in our minds through wicked works, shall then see God face to face 
and His name shall be in our foreheads. We who earned banishment shall enjoy communion. We who deserved the pains of hell shall know the bliss of heaven. Why? The mercy of God. Keep in mind, God doesn't need anything from mankind in order to exist. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. How can we in any way assist an almighty, all-powerful God? God extends His mercy to man because of who God is. Not because of who man is. We deserve only wrath, anger, and vengeance. But God extends His mercy to those who love Him. And to those who keep His commandments. Now, keep in mind that mercy is conditional. There are always conditions. The plan of salvation is conditional. Even if you embrace faith only, which I hope you don't, but if you do, even that's conditional. You have to believe. But the Bible says that in order to be saved... In the New Testament, it states clearly that you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must confess Christ before men. And you must be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. Salvation from sin is received when we respond to God's conditions. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the first gospel sermon in the name of a risen Redeemer. 3,000 people heard that sermon. The Bible says they were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Keep in mind, this would have been a great time for Peter to say, Accept the Lord Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. He did not do that. That is not in the New Testament. Those people cried out, What must we do? They obviously believed. And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Mark the 16th chapter in verse 15 and verse 16, immediately before Jesus ascended into heaven, He said to His disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Mercy is a part of the salvation package, but it is not unconditional. There are conditions. In Exodus 20 and verse 6, God says He shows mercy to thousands of them that love Me and keep My commandments. There's a condition. You must love Him and keep His commandments. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verse 28 and verse 29, the Hebrew writer warns that he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and had done despite unto the Spirit of grace. The Hebrew writer is saying that if you despise this gift that was given you through God's mercy, you'll endure a worse punishment than those under Moses' law. Mercy is undeserved, but mercy is not unconditional. If mercy, love, and grace are unconditional, then universalism has to be true. There's nowhere else to go. Mercy is great, but it is conditional. God is clearly a God of mercy. The Scriptures support it over and over again. In Psalms 25, verse 7, it says, Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. In Psalms 25, and verse 10, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep His covenant and His testimony. There's a conditional statement. In Psalms 33, and verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear Him. Upon them that hope in His mercy. Psalms 86 and verse 5. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto them that call upon thee. 
Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verses 14 through 16, a New Testament passage says, Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Titus 3 and verse 5, Paul said, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to trust Him. He wants us to yield our lives to Him, to heed His commands. And as a result, when it comes down to the end of our life, and as we pass through that valley of the shadow of death, we will say, as the psalmist said in Psalms 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is a God of mercy. The third and final thing we must see in understanding God, grace. Now, there is a difference between mercy and grace. Tozer, again, puts it best. He said, in God, mercy and grace are one. But as they reach us, they are seen as two. Related, but not identical. As mercy is God's goodness confronting human misery and guilt, so grace is His goodness directed toward human debt and demerit. It is by His grace that God imputes merit where none previously existed and declares no debt to be where one had been before. Mercy is the withholding of what we deserve, which is wrath. Grace is the giving of something that we do not deserve, which is forgiveness. Now let me tell you something, whether you know it or not, forgiveness is the one thing that you want and need more than anything else. You may not believe that, you may deny it, but when you stand before an almighty God on the day of judgment, you'll look over at me and know I'm right. The one thing that you need and want more than anything else is forgiveness, and grace is the means by which you can have that forgiveness. You see, we all have a problem and we have a mountain of sin. My mountain of sin, well, I'm 54 years old. I'm going to assume that at age 12, I became accountable unto God. Somewhere in that area. So for 42 years, I've been accountable before God. This morning, exactly, I looked it up. I have been accountable before God 15,407 days. Now, if you consider the fact that I might have sinned ten sins a day, my mother would tell you it was far more than that. But let's just say, for illustration's sake, that I sinned ten sins a day. That's 154,070 sins. That's my mountain of sin. Keep in mind that one sin, just one, is enough to separate me from a holy God. James 2 and verse 10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. And you'll understand that more when we get to the holiness of God. But what do I do about my mountain of sin? How do I deal with that? Again, I fall back on Tozer. He says, We can never know the enormity of our sin, neither is it necessary that we should. What we can know is that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. To abound in sin, that is the worst and the most we could or can do. The word abound defines the limit of our finite abilities. And although we feel our iniquities rise over us like a mountain, the mountain nevertheless has definable boundaries. It is so large, so high, it weighs only this certain amount and no more. But who shall define the 
limitless grace of God. It's much more plunges our thoughts into infinitude and confounds them there. All thanks be to God for grace abounding. My mountain of sin is overshadowed by God's infinite grace where I have found forgiveness. Romans 5 and verse 20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now the much more abound is from the Greek word huperparesio. It means to superabound, to abound beyond measure. No matter how big my mountain is, God's grace is bigger. And there's a mountain of verse to support it. In John the first chapter and verse 14, the Bible says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Romans 3 and verse 24, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1 and verse 7, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 2 and verse 5, Even when we were dead in sins, hath He quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9, God who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Hebrews 2 and verse 9, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. The word grace appears 131 times in the pages of the New Testament. In every single book of the New Testament, it appears with the exception of Matthew, Mark, and 3 John. Grace, love, and mercy, as well as other attributes of God, brought Jesus into a dark world and nailed Him to a cross so that you and I could find forgiveness. Grace is the reception of something that we do not deserve, and that something is forgiveness. The New Testament writers often began or ended their letters with grace, mercy, and love. And I can think of no better way to end this lesson. He is yours if you will receive Him. His love is yours if you will respond to Him. His mercy is yours if you will yield yourself to Him. His grace is yours if you will embrace it. But there are cautions. You can fall out of God's love. And someone may say, where's that book, chapter and verse? John 15 and verse 10. Jesus said, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. When Jesus said, if, He makes it conditional. If you keep His commandments, you'll abide in God's love. If not, you will not. You can neglect or despise God's gift and His mercy will be withdrawn. Hebrews 10 28 and 29, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much sore punishment suppose ye shall be thought worthy who had trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and had done despite unto the Spirit of grace. I don't know if you know it, but when it says he who despised Moses' law, the Greek word means just set aside. Just set aside. If you look at the cross of Calvary and you just set it aside... Sorer punishment than those punishments that were dealt out in the time of Moses. You can actually fall from grace according to the Bible. If you reduce Christianity to a set of laws, you can fall from grace. Galatians 5 and verse 4, Paul warned the church at Galatia, 
Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever you have justified by the law. You are fallen from grace. The bottom line is this. God wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want you just keeping laws. He wants to have a relationship. That's why the love. That's why the mercy. That's why the grace. Every one of those things is in the cross. His love, His mercy, His grace. It's all there. And you can have it, but you have to come to the cross.